What's up? This is Nikki D from Medium Plus, and I've got an interview with a local boy here today, Zach Jabal. He's uh, been a friend for a number of years, and we're going to talk all about his interests and our favorite wines from around the world. And Zach is behind a number of projects, including Disgorged, his latest offering. You can find him at disgorgedwine.com. And this episode of Medium Plus is edited and mixed by Chris Barr, and he is at soundcloud.com slash chris-barr, spelled B-A-H-R. And enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Cheers. So who are you? I am Zach Jabal. I am uh, many things. Sommelier, wine writer, podcast host. You have a sensitive side. <laughs> Seems reasonable to say. <laughs> you can ask. You can you can follow up with my wife to find out if that's really true. You're recently married too, yeah. I am. That's true. Yeah. Is six months ago? No, not even. Uh, just two two months ago. Two months ago. Well, congratulations yeah. to you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. But you and Caitlin have been together for a couple weeks. Couple already. Been, yeah, a couple weeks before that. Yeah. A couple of years. Um, yeah. Cool. So. You've been, would you say that she was your first love or wine? Oh, man. <laughs> we're, we're getting, we're getting put me, I barely started drinking and you put me right on the spot. Um, let's just say um, I met wine before I met her. <laughs> but fortunately, they are, wine is a love that we can both share. It's like a glorious threesome in our relationship. Oh, okay, yeah, I love that. Well, this first one that I've poured for you here, just something to sip on while we chat. 1999 P.S. Baumler Becca Urban Villeneuve Sonnener You know, I, this is perfect because the Villeneuve Sonnener, uh, the Sonnener um, vineyards in particular are something I find just, like, they're fascinating to me because when I, I remember first, I don't, well, I should say this. I don't remember the first time I heard the story because I don't remember who told it to me, but I remember hearing it and being like, Oh, Sundial, Sundial, and you hear about these famous Sundial vineyards in the Mosul, and you go, well, it makes a lot of sense. They put the Sundials where they get the most sun, and in mm -hmm. a place like the Mosul, where ripeness is so difficult, well, has been traditionally so difficult to come by, that unsurprisingly, the vineyards right around the Sundials, where they got the most sun exposure, were, generally speaking, some of the preeminent uh, vineyard sites. And it's just kind of this cool... I don't know, it's like that cool thing of unlocking wine, right? When you start to understand a little bit of the causative forces behind it, then everything about it, at least to me, makes more sense. The context relates yeah. to itself. Yeah. So there's Valen, uh, was it Zeltinger? Zeltinger and... Brandenburger um, Hufer? Yeah. Valen. I always get them. Uh, German is not my first language. Or second language. Or third. <laughs> we I end up, German wine. We end up speaking a lot of languages. Mm-hmm. I you know I tell people like I, all the time 20, I speak twenty words or something. I tell people all the time I speak wineless German, like wineless Italian. I speak restaurant Italian, a little more Italian than German, but yeah. But the thing about it is that just from reading bottles, we learn how to pronounce any word in the language. Yeah, because you have all the combinations. Well, in German, it's like this great example. People look at German labels and they're like, oh, "I don't understand this." And I mean, German is way simpler than anything else, because once you understand what the words mean, like. Take like Tokenbier and Auschleis as an example. Like once you understand how the language is constructed and the Germans basically just keep adding stuff on and make longer and longer words. So they look intimidating on the bottle, but like it's just a series of adjectives that they happen to append to the main central word, Auschleis in this case. And so that makes way more sense to me than 
you know, sort of the more opaque systems in lots of other European countries where, you know, what does SGN versus VT mean in Alsace? Like, you know, it's a little bit more... Do they even well, have I mean, a consistent idea no, of that? That too. But even like explaining, just trying to explain to someone else what the Selexian de Noble means is harder than being like, well, very late picked dry berries makes a lot more sense. Right. You can understand what you're getting in that context if you know anything about wine. It's amazing how much information is on a German wine label. So yeah. they've got Weingut P.S. Baumler Becker Urban. So that's the producer. Mm -hmm. And then this is B. Odermann Katern. I don't know what that is. Yeah, I don't know. Odermann Katern, is that the winemaker? No. Maybe it's the fam? I mean, it's hard to know because, again, yeah. like a lot of these things, they pass through maybe a few different um, like kind of levels of not ownership exactly, but just like who exactly has making the wine, who owns the winery. But yeah, you can place a German wine, you know, pretty specifically, especially if it's a single vineyard, like, or yeah. just uh, like the Velen or Sonner wines. There's this D54470, that might be the address, Valen Mosel. Yeah. Telephone number. Yeah, in case you'd like uh, to give them a call. Give them a call. Valen or Sonner, Spätle is there. So. I'm still waiting for the first German, uh, first German recent bottle I see that has a Twitter handle on it. Yeah. I'm sure that's coming. It's probably out there. I just haven't seen it. And then check this out. Erzeger Abfüllung. Yeah. That's one of those compound words. Exactly. I'm not sure what it means, actually. Erzeger Abfüllung. Yeah. I don't know. But it sounds great, right? Yeah. Delicious wine. Thank you. So where do you work right now? Uh, it gotta be, might be easier to start with where I don't work, but... Uh, so I am the wine lead at the Dahlia Lounge, uh, which is in downtown Seattle, is the... Flagship restaurant for Tom Douglas restaurants, uh, and of which there are now thirty. Guys, five hundred. I can't keep track. Uh, we're at like fifteen-ish. Kind of depends on how you count. Yeah. Um, and then I am the wine and spirits columnist for the Seattle Weekly. Uh, write about wine for Sip Northwest and for an online publication called uh, The Fresh Toast. I host my own podcast. Disgorged. Disgorged. And, and soon to be pop up. Soon to be pop up wine bar, uh, starting in March. March seventh will be day one, um, and that'll be my biggest project, uh, biggest upcoming project for a little while here. And then who the hell knows? I, I am uh, probably like you, Nick, a little bit of a. I like to stay busy, and I don't like to do just one <laughs> thing. So I, uh, I kind of put myself in a lot of different places, and yeah, a lot of a lot of flavors. Yeah, fortunately, they mostly uh, involve wine, and that's great because. That's what I love. One of the things I love. How did the pop-up come to fruition, or how did you get the idea? Um, you know, I think it was a couple of different things. Um, I went to, so f I guess probably a friend of, friend of mine, someone we probably both know, uh, Luke Wollers, uh, who now was a sommelier, now has a, his own distribution, important distribution company here in Seattle. He did a wine pop-up bar in P uh, Pioneer Square a couple of years ago, uh, and I went down there and checked it out and uh, wrote about it actually for the weekly back when that was going on and thought, no, oh, that's kind of a cool idea. Uh, but I've always felt like Seattle, unfortunately, has a kind of a lack of really nice, really good wine bars. And I think a wine bar is fundamentally different from a restaurant with a great wine program. Um, Seattle has some of those and they're wonderful and I like them a lot. And Seattle has several great wine bars. Um, but I think by and large, the wine culture in Seattle is still a little underdeveloped. And so I sort of have thought about that for a long time. Um, I've always been interested in hospitality and I, I love um, talking to people about wine and, and serving wine to people. 
uh, but just found that in restaurants, it's always that interaction is so um, has to be balanced against all the other things that you have to do in a in a full full on restaurant. You know, whether it's bringing people food, filling water glasses, care, you know, clearing plates. There's a lot of other elements that go on along with wine service, and and I felt like I want I personally wanted to be able to spend more time with wine with guests. And I wanted to be able to serve wines that I found a little bit more than just stuff that interested me and, and hopefully, but interested me, but not in a way that's like, oh, this is only I will get this wine. I really wanted them to be the wines that I'm serving to be approachable and interesting and enjoyable to, um, to a wide range of people. And I really wanted to kind of touch, tap into a culture of wine drinking that I think is out there, but has not really been fully explored in this area, which is the idea of like a glass of wine or two a little something to eat and really not more than that. You know, I'm not trying to open a restaurant. I'm not trying to do a full service dinner. And I think some of the wine bars that have opened in Seattle um, have really, I think, uh, struggled to find the balance where people walk in and they expect dinner. Mm. And I'm really trying to set that expectation, um, set the expectation that that's not what's going on. There will be some food, but it's going to be, you know, cheese and uh, maybe a little charcuterie and a few other little things, but really trying to keep the focus on the wine and, and not be a dinner restaurant. I, I mean, they're great. I don't want to own one, though. <laughs> That's not yeah. what I'm interested in. Yeah, I mean, having done a, a few pop-ups myself, it's it's a really great chance for you to be creative mm -hmm. and to design a custom experience that is a bit of a, a one-shot deal. Uh, well, as far as it's a singular experience that yeah. really is shaped by who's in the room that night. And yeah. I'm looking forward to checking it out. Thanks. Yeah, and I thought the appeal to me too was that it could kind of, because I'm doing it once a week to start out, it could really be something fundamentally different every time out. Um, and that doesn't mean that wines won't make repeat appearances and that some things won't be uh, kind of consistent. But I really, I wanted to have that freedom to explore um, different wines, different regions, different styles, different approaches. Uh, you know, I don't have all the answers and I, and I can also only serve so much wine in any given night. Um, so the idea is really to keep it vibrant so that hopefully, you know, I think there's nothing more, um, if you're, if you're a wine lover, there's nothing more exciting than, than someone, uh, who you hopefully know and trust being like, Hey, I, I think you should try this. I think you'd like this. And, and that's, you know, to me, that's the essence of hospitality. It's the essence of wine service. It's the essence of what I love about it is, is finding people who are, um, interested, who want to try, uh, new things or an old favorite that they've forgotten about or, mm -hmm. or whatever. And, um, being able to kind of be the conduit to that you know that's that's how i a lot of how i see my job whether it's writing or, or running a wine program or doing a pop-up or whatever is really just um you know, it's my job to to know what's going on in the world of wine and then to try and sort of weed through all that and figure out what's good what's of value what's interesting and and then put that uh in front of um, people who hopefully find it tasty i love it and that's going to start you have your soft open then. Yeah, on. gonna give the uh, give it the old trial run uh, coming up here in a couple of days, and then uh, and then open the doors to the public, uh, <laughs> whoever whoever is out there, and uh, yeah. in March and, and just see how it goes. Um, it'll be yeah, it'll be a learning experience if nothing else. So cool. Well, tell me a little bit about what you have here as far as uh, some wine to taste. Sure. Um, so you know, one of the things that I I have looked at a lot in. Um, in putting together the wine program uh, for Disgorged, which is the the pop ups name, uh, is uh, is one, are wines that I, I really find um, 
interesting and, and as I mentioned before, kind of value. And that, that value term is a little bit of a vague one. It can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of really, really great wine out there that I unfortunately can't afford to drink very often. Um, and the people who can um, have their means of getting it. Right. Um, and for those of us who, for whom it's a very occasional indulgence, if we also have our ways of getting it. Um, but I decided a lot of what I decided to focus on were kind of places where I thought um, I and by uh, extension the people coming to the pop-up could find um, value. And so I think actually, despite it being incredibly well-known as a wine region, I think Bordeaux is a really good example of a place where there's incredible value to be found. Mm -hmm. um, once you step away from the sort of classified growths and those, those wines, which are often amazing and sometimes even deliver value in a sort of general sense, but they're very expensive, um, either kind of ridiculously so or just fairly expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think, um, you know, the, the quality of winemaking in Bordeaux is, broadly speaking, pretty high. Um, there's a lot of interesting things going on. And I love white Bordeaux. I think that's actually one of my um, sort of favorite discoveries in the time I've been in the industry is, is really that style of um, sort of Sauvignon Blanc wine as opposed to I mean, I have a certain love for Sancerre, and there's other sort of Sauvignon Blanc producing regions that I think make quite good wines. But, but that, but I almost think that Sauvignon Blanc in Bordeaux is almost a totally different thing. Um, I guess there's some similarities with a little bit of the way it's made in times here in the U.S. and particularly in California. But, but even so, I think they're fundamentally different. So this this is a bottle that we have here, which is a, a Chateau Grand Renard, uh, is uh, interesting. It's definitely Vitritis influenced um, dry but definitely has a lot of that sort of ginger saffron quality um, along with this really bright acidity. Um, it's a blend actually of Sauvignon Blanc and Sauvignon Gris. So no Sauvignon mm. in this one. So a little bit um, esoteric, this is from uh, uh, the Bly region. So um, kind of across the river from uh, the Omidoc where uh, you know, maybe the most famous part of Bordeaux. Um, but yeah. Yeah, kind of around the corner from Saint-Emilion. Yeah, and this is actually um, from these, these uh, grapes themselves are actually a little bit further north they're actually not that far from uh cognac region uh so kind of at the northern edges of mm. um of the bordeaux appellation entirely um but you know i think super it's just super interesting you know again this people you know that that botrytis note um mm -hmm. is definitely evident but but i think the wine carries it well you know botrytis can be great can be a little overwhelming at times Bordeaux is one of these tricky regions to study. So Cote de Bordeaux, there's the four subregions. Is it Blaye, Castillon, Franc, and Bourg? Right? Cadillac. Cadillac. That's right. Cadillac. So then Bourg is uh, its neighbor yeah. to Blaye. Um, but I think it's it's just a way to elevate this vineyard area so that it, it gets some recognition. Yeah, and the, the French systems have, have kind of focused more and more on, um, I think it's maybe smaller appellations to try and create some differentiation so that it's not all just the sort of sea of hard to hard to locate um, white or red in the case of Bordeaux. I mean, Bordeaux is a big region, mm -hmm. and if this was all just labeled Bordeaux, you know, then you really have no sense as a buyer or whatever of where in the world it's coming from unless... You know, someone tells you <laughs> it's like saying wines of california yeah exactly it's very it's... very similar actually i mean you look at how um you know how m over time we continue here in the u.s to get more and more uh, specific about where wines come from and that you know when you know 
whereas you might have had a Napa Valley AVA 30, 40 years ago, now you have you know what, 18 or something sub AVAs within uh, the Napa Valley. And here in Washington, we have 14 or so, some of which are sub AVAs contained entirely within um, larger AVAs. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely that, that slow focus on um, sort of narrowing the geographic boundaries. Even down to single vineyard wines. And that too, sure. And we're seeing that more in the old world as well, you know, with modern Barolo producers love to put their specific crew on the label versus traditional, often will blend between different sites. Yeah, and I think that's actually a really interesting point of conversation in our line of work, because I think there is a part of me that appreciate, I mean, I definitely appreciate the idea of, of sort of looking at single site wines and and appreciating those when when it actually means something. I think, unfortunately, you're starting to see, you know, I guess you could charitably say some um, rather ambitious single vineyard labelings, uh, if not kind of crudely or cynically sort of like, oh, well, people will pay more for a single vineyard wine, so if we put a single vineyard on there. Um, and we're still, especially here in the U.S., um, you know, maybe Varola is a different story. But here in the U.S., you know, we're sort of, we're still so new and the no, nowhere has, you know, really, with maybe a couple of exceptions in California, really has a sufficient history to say, I think, with definitive um, uh, sort of clarity, hey, we're like, this is a clear single vineyard. There's a unique expression of wine from this, from this vineyard site that is in some way distinctive that carries across wines. We're starting to get that. We're starting to learn that. I think you're starting to see it. And I think it's great that, that people are thinking that way, that, you know, the dominant trend is no, well, not, there's still a lot of trends towards blending across wide geographic regions, but we're starting to see more and more people focus on on smaller regions, if not individual vineyards. And that I think will be beneficial in the long run, but we're still, you know, you look at, you know, the, the most famous, you know, sort of single vineyard set of appellations in the world in Burgundy. And it's not like those things were put into place 40 years or 20 years after people planted those vineyards. I mean, it was hundreds, if not thousands of years later that someone, that people came along and started classifying them. Right. And they did it after, you know, like I said, literal eons practically in, in, <laughs> in world history of establishing those sites as special. And we don't have that history here in the U.S. and really not that many places in the world even have that history of quality production over a period of hundreds of years to kind of differentiate. You know, there's a few places besides Burgundy but there aren't a lot of them. And, and it's, you know, it's, everyone wants to be at that point. Everyone wants to be, you know, they want their Grand Cru's and whatnot, and they want to be able to charge what Burgundy charges for their wines probably. But, but uh, you know, you got to get there through a lot of, um, through a lot of wine. Well, and, you know, we can take a theoretical New World appellation that has maybe 15 or 20 years of history and, calling those single vineyards and comparing them to an old world idea. It's like you're saying, there's, there's not the historical precedent. Yeah. I mean, if the idea of, you know, a single vineyard site of a Grand Cru site is that for one, the quality level is exceptionally high, every vintage essentially. And to some extent that those wines are unique and distinctive across, but that, you know, even, you know, Chassagne Montrachet and Pellini Montrachet are not the same, that they're different, that they're, or I mean, uh, well, uh, Le Montrachet and, um, 
you know, pick another, uh, you know, Chevalier, Montrachet, or whatever, mm-hmm. that those are um, distinctive wines from one another, let alone everything else around them in uh, that part of Burgundy, that those wines are, you know, that you can differentiate them, mm-hmm. is, you know, we're just, we don't have, that. there's no track record, or there's not sufficient track record, and, you know, that's not a, that's that that sounds negative. I don't even think it is. I think, you know, in some ways, we're here in the U.S. and here in the West Coast, we're, you know, we have our own advantages, like a lot of freedom that no one in Europe has, or very few people in Europe have, and, and especially in places like France, where the system is much more um, codified, and so you kind of have to make, for the most part, what has been made in your region traditionally, whether or not that's what you want to make, or even to some extent, maybe that's currently what your land is best suited for. There's just sort of a uh, an expectation and a and a requirement to some extent um, that if you want to at least if you want to be able to label your wine with anything that's recognizable you have to make the kind of wine that's always been made there and there's a fair amount of rebels that are <clears throat> labeling their wine Van de France or true, IGP true. yeah but again you that takes a certain you have to have a certain kind of self-confidence and I have a lot of respect for those people but it's very you know those wines tend to have um, a limited audience Mm-hmm. And then, or you end up with a situation like you end up with in Tuscany where, you know, you have producers in the 60s and 70s making, you know, super Tuscans and labeling those as, you know, VDT wines. And then eventually the Italian government comes around and says, hey, you can call those DOC wines. That's cool. We'll, we'll just put a DOC, it's super Tuscan DOC. Great. Uh, and that may happen in France eventually with some of these <laughs> appellations that are, or some of these winemaking styles that are kind of bucking the existing AOC system. But I don't know. That that remains to be seen. As long as they make it as complicated as possible, <laughs> right? I'm happy. Yeah, why would studying why would we want studying to be easy? <laughs> then anyone could do it. Yeah, I think anyone can appreciate wine just like it doesn't take a whole lot of brain power to appreciate good ice cream. You just have yeah. you know, you go down and, and get some ice cream and you eat it and it's like, hell yeah, this is good. Mm-hmm. And that hell yeah reaction is is just natural so that's the thing that is a bit challenging with wines is sometimes let's say with nebbiolo it takes a while to get used to it for the first time nebbiolo taster for sure i mean i think there's there's you know there's an incredible process i I love to talk about this with people i think a lot of people come to wine from a couple of different angles i think there are if you look at like the continuum of wine the spectrum of wine um, and you place maybe like say sweet white wine on one end and like really big full-bodied red wines on the other end. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people's entry point to wine, at least traditionally, I think it's changing now, but it was for a long time, I think, one of those two angles. Either you kind of got into yeah, you wine. work towards the middle. Exactly. And you sort of, you start out. So I started out, um, well, I was a little bit atypical because I grew up uh, in, around wine to some extent. So my entry point to wine was a lot of Italian wine. Um, and so that sort of earthy, rustic style of wine was kind of my initial experience. Um, but then I would say I transitioned from there into sort of, big full-bodied reds. I mean, my early wine days were a lot focused around that, and that was what appealed to me. Um, and I think, you know, if you get into this industry, in a lot of cases, you end up sort of with an appreciation for a wide range of styles, but mm-hmm. often it's balance and a little bit of subtlety that tends to keep, that tends to fascinate most of us. I, I wouldn't say universally, but I think, like, some ways in general tend to like stuff that's that's complex for sure, but balanced and, and has some, a lot of, it can have a lot of different uh, components to it. Um, so anyhow, so if you look at that spectrum and you sort of think, okay, I, people either enter on the sweet white probably side or the big, bold, full-bodied reds, which <laughs> shockingly also sometimes are sweet. You just can't tell so easily. Yeah. Um, those, the, working towards the middle 
or even the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, it was really fascinating. I mean, I didn't drink white wine when I first got into wine. I mean, I almost never. Um, for the first few years, I was really interested, started to get interested in it, and then just started to learn more and became more and more fascinated. And actually, really, in some ways, think making world-class white wine is a lot harder than making world-class red wine. Um, I just think it the, the winemaking is more demanding. I think you have to be more precise in a lot of ways. And, and there are there's less you can do to kind of hide um, mistakes slash just not great grapes. I think white wine is more transparent in that way. Yes, I was hoping you would use that term transparent because just like with either of these two wines, especially aromatic whites, they show exactly what's going on every step of the way. The sulfur is right out there if there's any, the botrytis, any oak, mallow leaves, whatever process is going on, it shows. Versus yeah. reds, it's a bit more muddled. Yeah, and especially if you throw gauging into the into the mix there, then you kind of start adding all those um, aromatic uh, and textural notes to the wine, and, and it kind of can a little bit obscure what's what's gone on in the vineyard. Um, and I mean, I think that that's one of the big stories in winemaking. You know, now is sort of to what extent is should the wine you know to what extent should the winemaker and the winemaking process impact the resulting wine in an obvious way and i think you know i interview lots of winemakers and i think you know there's a wide range of opinions on that there's definitely some people who think that you know they should completely have nothing to do with it and maybe if they had their way they would like literally just put grapes in a bin and let them ferment i'm not sure that's <laughs> the ideal way to make wine in a lot of cases but sometimes it works it can be delicious done essentially as minimally as possible and on the flip side there's definitely people who still look at uh you know kind of large amounts of new oak you know typically french but maybe american occasionally or hungarian or whatever um as an essential part of winemaking and i think that latter part is not exactly disappearing but it's really moving into a particular realm of wine and, and a lot more wines are stepping out of that style um because it's for one pretty uh, invasive to the wine and it's also expensive and mm -hmm. you know a lot more people are realizing that you know there's a definitely a growing market for wine and even wine at the high end but but it all so many more people i think are now there's so much good wine that's not super expensive out there that it makes it harder to sell a hundred dollar kind of whatever bottle of red wine unless you're napa and apparently everyone can do it so this um this second wine that we're trying yeah from so, your collection here well this was actually so i i literally just my one of my reps was bringing this by today and um he left it with me and now i'm sharing it with you so i can't claim to be an expert on this wine because i just tasted it for the first time today myself but i was um, really struck by it so this is um a uh a spanish wine a blend of uh, monastrell and garnacha or you know Morvedro and grenache if you're most of the rest of the world mm -hmm. or um, mataro that's true yes Garnacha spelled uh, in many ways, depending on where in Spain you are. Garnacho. Yes, that too. Um, and so um, I find this, you know, I mean, Spain as a country to me, as a wine producing country is just, it, it, it is amazing. I mean, there's an incredible history. There's incredibly, uh, there's a lot of high quality wine there. There's a lot of great, great, great old uh, vine material and great sites and only god i don't know in the last feels like the last few years has a sort of broader wine world really caught on um and especially i mean i love rioja i think rioja is a great wine and it's been on people's radar to some extent for a while obviously cava um both in the very inexpensive but also like you know high-end reserva 
and ground reserve levels has been to some extent on the market. I mean, and you know, certainly Sherry, um, although sadly Sherry is not uh, on the market in a lot of ways. Um, but I mean, almost, How do you mean? well, I just think it's, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, hearing this could be apocryphal, but like the Sherry industry is almost entirely you know, it's just not profitable. You know, there's just mm. not, you know, as much as you and I and, and people on our line of work love it, Sherry is a really hard sell. Um, you know, there's a little, there's some of it on the market, but, you know, the traditional markets for it, um, the UK are less interested than ever before. And, mm. and uh, globally, it's just, it's a hard sell. Um, it's too bad because it's an amazing tradition. There's amazing wines there. And there, I, mean, I don't mean it's like going away entirely. I just mean, it's just, I don't know. I mean, I, I have, I, I've tried at various times and places I've been to put more sherry on shelves and or on lists, and it's just it's a tough, it's a tough go. You know, people are either not willing to try it; they think it's all going to be sweet, or conversely, they're not ready for the drier styles of sherry, and they're mm -hmm. they're scared off by how <laughs> how very dry it can be. Um, and I just think like it is a. I don't want that history like you know like the history or that tradition like the tradition in port and a few other sort of mm. um really kind of intricate production wines to go away i think you know we're you know we're they're, they're incredible legacies they're incredible global um treasures and then but at the same time if no one buys it then at some point i don't know what those producers will do i don't know what will happen but i, I mean they'll start making more and more just dry wine you know just right. still white wine and all that good i guess so. well if my I, if i have my way sherry's gonna take off more than ever before I, but it seems to really be catching speed with our cocktail friends and yeah yeah wine friends yeah oh i mean it's definitely like you know within the industry circles i think it's definitely quite popular but i think you know i've yet to see much evidence that it's translating to a broader audience um as a whole now, now that doesn't mean that it won't and that doesn't mean that um it can't pick up some momentum over time, but, but I just, you know, I, I have concerns that it will, that it will be viable. And then part of it is just, you know, the, the, the challenges of, of farming and producing the wine, you know, it's just, it's a time and labor intensive product and it doesn't, you know, it's those, it's a whole lot harder. And like I said, a lot more time consuming to turn, you know, I don't know palomino grapes into sherry than it is to make pick a wine or turn it into booze like turn it into brandy yeah that too so but there's a, a certain market of sherry barrels going up to well and that's actually i think the thing that's been keeping it all float to some extent is the the demand for used sherry casks is really like for like scotch production yeah that i was i was hearing from a producer um that like they basically have to like they buy huge quantities of sherry just to be able to get the barrels that they need. They don't to even eat. use the sherry. Yeah, or sometimes. it gets or it gets like resold for very cheap. It's very it's kind of sad in a way. But I guess it's better than not being made. But it is a weird like the demand for the used barrel is what keeps some of those um Montanistas around. Remind me about Amasanista of how that term is used. <laughs> well, I'm far from a sherry expert, but I would, I mean, to me, I think it's sort of the, the general term for, um, 
you know, it's hard with Sherry because I feel like you, you kind of get, there's this whole kind of weird confluence of people who grow grapes, people who, you know, sort of have the production side, I guess you would say, you know, sort of the Soleras or whatever. And then you have the the people who bottle and, and export and distribute and all that. Mm -hmm. And it's a very intricate and sort of, I think studying about it hard to, to, to separate out system where it doesn't really, you know, we don't, you know, you learn, even if you learn champagne or something with, you know, with, uh, the big champagne houses, uh, you know, the, um, negotiants and whatnot, and you look at that system, it at least makes sort of sense. Like the negotiants buy grapes, they make the wine, they sell the wine, or they blend the wines, mm -hmm. they sell them. It's a two tier process and sherry is like, shit in some places like three four five tiers depends right on what kind of sherry you're making and how it's being sold and so and obviously there's a lot of history there and so some of those existing relationships go back hundreds of years and you look at a name and it's a famous name mm -hmm. and then you realize like oh but those people don't own a single vine like they literally just buy stuff and it's it's very complex and it makes it again it's like you know like we talk a lot i think in psalm circles and wine circles about like you know, sort of transparency and this, you know, we talked about with white wine and this appreciation of wines from a place. Mm -hmm. And in a way, like, Sherry is the complete opposite of that, right? Like, you, you I mean, there could be counterexamples, I'm sure they are out there, but in a lot of ways, you know, you look at Sherry and Sherry is really about the process of mm -hmm. making wine. It's not really about the grapes. It's not really about where they come from. Palomino on its own doesn't have a lot of character. Yeah, and that's the exact reason why you make it in Sherry. You don't, you know, varietal bottle it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, not much acid either. Yeah, yeah. It's really fascinating how you get these very high acid wines. Uh, you know, some of the really dry sort of Fina style sherries that. And I'm not even sure if they have high acid, but the perception or, yeah, there, is there's there something. because there's no glycerol. Yeah, that's true. So the acid aldehyde kind of gives a similar perception as acid would, but they're really yeah. moderate acid wines yeah. that have just this very unique state of of being very lean. Yeah. Yeah, they sort of present as acidic, I guess. Yeah, that's a better way to describe it. Um, and so, yeah, it's just really... Uh, anyhow, the, the 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 system itself is just so... so difficult to wrap your head around. And I'm, I'm far, far, far from an expert. I just like drinking this stuff from time to time. So, anyhow, so back to the wine we're actually drinking. Well, yeah, the, this red... So, Valencia, yeah. it looks like it's a regional wine. Yeah, not a, not a lot of specific designation, but uh, but I think like again a lot of Spain. When you get outside of the couple of most famous regions, um, you see just a like I said a lot of um, really really quality wines that are just kind of you know that have only maybe recently made their way to the U.S. market. They're kind of small production. They're sort of they have you know maybe really old vine material, like I said, and they're just you know they they have this sort of they have this sort of rusticity that sort of feels like Italy a little bit, um, but they're distinctly Spanish in there. I mean, part of it's the varietals in play, yeah. but also just like, you know, there are world-class uh, wines in Spain for sure, but I think especially when you start looking at stuff that's kind of everyday wine, it's hard for me to, to think that Spain and Portugal too, um, it's hard to kind of beat a lot of what you can get out of there in the market currently. Like these wines are just deliver a lot of complexity and character without being, you know, more than... You know, certainly on a retail shelf, they're under 20 bucks. Well, tons of juicy fruit going on here, mm -hmm. a nice structure. And reading the back label here, it says 70% Monastrol, 30 yeah. Garnacha Tintorera. Wow. Uh, was it Garnacha Tintorera? 
my Spanish pronunciation is garbage. But that was better than I could um, do. It says dry farming at seven hundred meters above sea level mm -hmm. in sandy soil. Yeah, so that's true. You also see a lot. It's of like elevation. half a mile up. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely you know like yeah, it's it's good good height twenty three twenty four hundred feet something like that. Um, yeah, I mean elevation is a huge a huge uh, factor in a lot of Spain too, um, and yeah, it's a I mean most of, a lot of Spain is you know pretty arid and desert like and. So you have a lot of those influences on the wine. So you definitely get that ripeness, but it's not sort of jammy. It's just like you got bright, ripe fruit, but it's, it's really, bright. but it's really got that sort of leaner structure behind it that kind of keeps it from being too, you know, it doesn't just kind of sit there. It's, yeah. It's got dry, yeah. solid backbone. Alcohol's not over the top. 13.5. I believe it, you know. Yeah. Totally. There can be some wiggle room with alcohol sometimes. But... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you want to pay less, uh, especially domestically, but even... Uh, importing you just fudge those numbers down till you hit a lower price point and tons of black pepper which monstrell is known yeah. for having a yeah lot. definitely and that and just that kind of like so i was tasting this wine and then also this producer has a 100 uh, percent monstrell and that, i mean that smelled like dead animal i mean it was so intense mm. um and i kind of have a certain appreciation for that the sort of sauvage as the french call it that sort of wild <laughs> quality but but uh on its own it was a little intense so i kind of like, i kind of like this uh this blend with the you know you just get a little bit more of that sort of delicate prettiness the fruit uh the kind of confected note from the garnacha that kind of comes through just a touch and, and balances out that sort of um yeah that sort of dead animal really savory terroir yeah i guess right yeah something and how about this guy the the burzi so uh, this this third one is a this is a souvenir from uh, from a trip to uh, Piedmont that I took with my wife in mm. uh, November. So this one is not imported into the United States. So you're getting a, what? a sneak peek here, Nick. Uh, I mean, I think that will change. I think the wine is of high enough quality that, and I know a few people are already on the, yeah. on the hunt. But uh, you know, Longa Nebbiolo is another to me just like this incredible example of um, tremendous value in the world of wine, um, especially now where you have. Um, you know, more and more producers looking at wines that are accessible in their youth. Mm. When, and Nebbiolo, as we talked about before, can certainly make, you know, these kind of impenetrable wines that are just so tannic and so acidic and take forever to kind of unwind. And I think we're seeing a definitely a shift away from that in, in even in Barolo and Barbaresco, but, but also when, you know, Longa Nebbiolo, which is sort of uh, less aging, um, mm -hmm. Maybe a little bit younger buying material, depending on who's making it. Um, but really, I mean, they're delightful wines, and and this is a 2015. And I think is totally ready to go. Like it's not, you know, I don't think this needs more time to kind of make itself approachable. It's just it's got the beautiful aromatics of Nebbiolo. You know, this uh, sort of a, a orange and even rose petal uh, sort of um, perfume, and uh, lots of cedar smoke and tobacco and just that slight hint of tar and it's just it's just beautiful i mean i just noticed this glass when i when i opened it uh, earlier at home you know poured myself a little bit and i just smelled it for five ten minutes just to kind of enjoy it and then you know tastes good too that helps mm -hmm. so it says here well there's no real english on the bottle <laughs> at all yeah uh, so being that it's non-imported -im there's no import indication and there's no government warning no, so that's right. You are taking a risk by drinking this wine. Yes. You can... Uh, you can yeah, you I'm can. not pregnant, so we're okay. okay. Good to know. I'm not going to operate any machinery. Okay. 
But yeah, what is the, to say the microphone here? is not heavy machinery, I'm pretty sure. Uh, right? Vitigno, 100% Nebbiolo. Mm -hmm. uh, maturazione is 15 giorni a temperatura. Temperatura. Yeah, so it's basically, so one of the things that um, Alberto Bertzi does with this wine is, um, you know, it's a pretty, it's pretty intense temperature control in the ferment. That's how he kind of maintains the aromatics. I think with Nebbiolo, sometimes if you don't, um, you know, I think one of the big, uh, uh, the sort of the increased use of jacketed fermenters and things like that in, in Piedmont in general has really helps those winemakers per, protect those aromatic compounds because if you let the ferment get too warm, you kind of end up, um, from what I understand, you lose a lot of those kind of very delicate aromatic compounds in that process. Um, you kind of lose the perfume. Right. Um, so I always use a jacket yeah. on my fermenter. Yeah, it's important. Um, yeah, so this is, uh, yeah, so the winery is in uh, La, Mora, La Mora on the hill of Barolo. Mm. And um, I'm not entirely sure where he's, had a very nice time tasting with him. Alberto's English is certainly much better than my Italian is, but, sure. but didn't manage to get every last detail from him. But um, yeah, he makes Just, this, he makes a, a Barbera and a Barolo. And a Barolo. Mm -hmm. Cool. So this is sort of the fresh, early drinking. Yeah. Nebbiolo, and then probably the 15 Barolos aren't even out yet. Definitely not. I, I would be, no, I mean, legally he can't have even, they still have to be in barrel, let alone in bottle. So we're still. Um, You're right. Because he would need to be at least in barrel for two years and then uh, in bottle for. Was it 30? Like, I think it's 18 months, but I'm. Oh no, maybe it's, maybe it's four years total. So maybe you have to be two years out, four years out from the. It's weird. I was, I think it's like, you can't release the wine until. January first, on the third years after, like the fourth year after the harvest date. So whatever that ends up being, I have. And Barbaresco is a little just one year earlier. Year, year earlier, both yeah. for Reserva and Normale. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, no. So his his so Barolo Reserva is is five and three, plus two months. Yeah. So it's so, a so regular Barolo. So is, it's thirty eight months and sixty two months. Yeah. And then, what is it? Twenty six. And 50? I think that's correct, yeah. We're getting super yeah. into it over here. It's cool. They have the, the traditional Al Bates uh, um, bottle. So yeah. you'll notice a lot of Barola bottles have this. I guess it's the bottle producer? I think so, yeah. I think it's uh, the whatever the, the term is there. Uh, but yeah, so uh, it was really kind of cool. Got um, was on a spent a day on, when we were in Alba with a woman who runs, uh, who does uh, kind of culinary and wine tours in the area. And so we got to go to, we go to a few wineries, um, including this one, which I had never heard of, obviously, because he's not even in the market and it's fairly new. Uh, we also went truffle hunting, which was pretty what? amazing. Yeah. White, so, white truffle. White, yeah. 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 We were there uh, kind of right in the peak of truffle season. Um, and so the truffle, the big white truffle festival itself had ended, um, about a week before, but white the, truffle festival. Yeah, it's pretty bonkers. Apparently, in Alba, what? Like, they have a huge market, and I mean, I mean, also like every restaurant has white truffles all over their menu. Um, it was we definitely got a lot. <laughs> we went to we had the opportunity we had lunch with uh, Aldo Vaca, who's uh, the uh, kind of runs the Purtura del Barbaresco, the big Barbaresco uh, commune in uh, in Barbaresco. Okay, and uh, there's a restaurant by, called Anticatore, which is right next to the winery, and it's famous. It's the place where um, so restaurant in Seattle, Spinasse, their tireen is basically, they were, they went there to learn how to make it. 
Um, so this is so we had uh, we had Tyrene as one of the courses with white truffles and that's uh, a pasta. Yeah, so Tyrene is this very very thin, very fine pasta, but it's made with um, a really really high percentage of egg yolks. You have um, any with you? <laughs> we should go to Spinasse. Yeah. And like. Yeah, no, it's theirs that. is very good, but the the one I mean the Antiquatore was kind of its own experience because we're drinking uh, some older Barbaresco and the and they they bring out the basket of truffles and Aldo like selects the right one you know and he and the woman uh, the server just is like I have a video which I can send to you and you can put it on maybe with this it'd be funny so it's sure. like she she's you can see her in the video like I'm filming my plate of pasta and she's shaving the truffle and like you know here in Seattle if you get white truffles on something you know and you pay you know 20 30 40 you'll bucks get for like that you get two or three slices yeah they kind of shave for a second they're like that's it and here she's saving for like five seconds and then stops and I'm like wow that's a lot of truffles and then she adjusts the thing on the on the shaver and then shaves more. And I'm like, this is insane. So it's like a little mountain. Oh, it was amazing. Um, it was a cool trip and a very delicious meal. And uh, if you ever happen to be in Barbaresco, it's definitely worth going to. Because uh, yeah. there's not, for one, there are for a lot of other restaurants in Barbaresco. It is not big. But uh, it's a small little. It's delicious. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, too, about these, these like, what names to us that are, like, you know, super famous and kind of these world-class wines. Like, you go there and it's just, just I mean, it's, there's a little bit of wine tourism uh-huh. there. Not a lot. A few of the wineries are starting to see more tourism and starting to gear up a little bit for that. But, I mean, still, it's a lot of, like, you know, just kind of casual and, and just not a big part of the process. And uh, in both France and Italy, um, when I was there in November. And uh, and so, and a lot of these towns are just tiny. We went to the we went to Gignas outside, mm. of, you know, in the, the Southern Rhone. And Gignas is, like, I don't know, like 200 people live there. Like, it's tiny. It's interesting, like, tasting these wines and studying them, and it, in my mind, like, Chateauneuf de Pop is enormous, yeah. right? And, and it's, it's not. Probably the size of Ballard. Yeah, and it, well, it's like, the, the, there's not a ton of, of land, or a lot of vineyards, I mean, there's a decent amount, but it's also just, like, it's very nondescript in a lot of ways, like, you kind of, if you, when you look at the way the, the wine industry in the United States is structured, and wide greens is, like, I don't know about you, Nick, but, like, I remember the first time when I knew anything about wine that I went to Napa and you drive down Highway 29 and it's just like, you know, famous wineries and big, you know, opulent tasting rooms and busloads of tourists and everything you could imagine. And then you go to a place like Gash's and the Pop where we were and like I go, you know, go to View Telegraph or, or Book Estelle or something like places that are like world famous wineries and it's like, you know, granted we were there in November and we were there... I don't remember the days of the week, but it doesn't really matter. Like, you know, with just not much going on. I mean, they're making wine, but they don't, the, the sort of wine tourism thing is really an American, well, or at least a new world phenomenon, I think. And, and they don't, they're starting to see a little bit more of it. And there's certainly regions where there's more of it than in the places. Probably the, to be. the big Bordeaux Chateau and. But yeah, I mean, some of, for sure, like the first growths and stuff. But I think even there, like, you'd be surprised, I, I would bet, at how kind of humble until at least until very recently some of those places have been i think they're you're seeing obviously a lot of money flow in there so to some extent that might be changing but you know it's just it's not for whatever reason you know like the french don't like a french weekend activity for just an average person is not like let's go to the nearby wine region and check it out because like, they already have wine with every meal exactly it's a little less special in that regard and it's just the idea of weirdly i guess the idea of going to the place where it's made or seeing the vineyards just I guess doesn't seem as compelling, whereas to me, if I mean that's the fact. I mean, you get a chance to go to Chateauneuf de Pop, you go out there and walk into the, you know these these vineyards, and you see that you know the 
the cobblestones and everything that let that make up the soil or the surface level and you go like this is like i i saw this shit in a book like five years I, ago i had to learn about it to like pass a test and now i'm like literally standing here and it's like it's super cool and it blows and, your mind and then you know no one else gives a shit i mean the winemakers care the people at the winery care but but the broader community just doesn't seem to doesn't seem to it's not they don't care that's that's dismissive it's just not they don't look at it the same way i think I don't know what I don't know what an, an analogous sort of situation would be, but man, this Nebbiolo is right. It's delicious. So is is that Runcaya? Uh, as far as I know, yeah, that's how I would pronounce it, Runkaya. and I don't know what that means either. <laughs> Again, I, I got limited information out of Alberto, but it was it was cool. He's uh, you know, cause I know a fairly young guy uh, in his thirties making wine, and uh, you know that's another thing that's really fascinating to me about those kind of places is you know there's incredible. There's history. There's a lot of sort of family-owned businesses, and, and even some of the larger places are still very much family-owned. Um, and it's hard sometimes for new winemakers or younger winemakers who are not who don't have vineyard land in the family to get started. Um, but I think you're starting to see a little bit more of that. You know, there's there's more. You know, it's a little bit easier maybe to buy grapes a little bit, and there's more openness to someone sort of creating their own identity as opposed to kind of just. You to be you know compared to uh, compared to being like the sixth or seventh generation of winemaker in your family. Right. Remind me, are you still doing things with vine trainings? Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, you know, I've got that's an effort. They even mentioned when you asked me to do. I also have another business, uh, vine trainings. That's wine classes, um, and you know that's a really interesting kind of like um, avenue to approach wine. Too, um, I love talking. Obviously, I'm here talking to you about. It. I love talking about wine. Um, I love teaching about wine and, uh, you know, and, and it's such a broad, uh, subject matter and, and there's so much of it that is really seems overwhelming to most people and intimidating mm -hmm. to most people. And I'm mm -hmm. sure you deal with this all the time too, that, um, you know, it's really, there's so much, there's both an incredible amount of information and there's a lot of people who are trying to make wine accessible. Um, and approachable and I think you know how you go about doing that is I think a lot of it and I I, I really try to be uh, clear and I try and be as use as much sort of non-technical language as I can when I'm working with people who are not wine professionals but I also don't try and dumb stuff down as best I can I think it does most people a disservice to kind of be overly simple you know I think there's a you know, I will say I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit of shit, not not necessarily name names, but I think there is this unfortunate or sort of trend in the industry of um, oversimplification, and I see it a lot with people who are. I mean, I'm not. You know, I'm 33. I'm not exactly an old guy, um, but I've been in the industry for a little while, and I think I see a generation coming along that that has a different road in front of it um you know where wine is more of a cultural thing than it was even when i was mm -hmm. you know 10 years ago starting or 10 or whatever years ago starting out a little bit in this industry and and um there's more out there and you know this sort of you know the success of you know the whether it's the song movies and the popularization of sort of the the quartermaster sommeliers and all that and then you kind of layer on that the sort of cultural cachet i mean like the like every single like everyone I know now loves rosé and like to me that whole thing is really strange like I I don't I mean I love rosé and it doesn't in a way surprise me but it's become kind of this weird like 
cultural thing and and that's great in some ways i think it's also unfortunate because there's a lot of not very good rosé out there that people seem to be like <sighs> fawning over but um i just think like there's a lot of people trying to cash in on this craze and i don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that but i do think like there's some people i know or not you know personally but just see out there who like don't maybe necessarily have the life or or wine experience to be putting themselves out there as an expert but are because you know that's just what happens um and i think it's, you have to learn you know you have to learn if i had come you know if i sat down with you when i was 25 and talked to you about the wines i liked and what i knew about wine or even 30 you know three years ago um i think i would have said different things and that's not a bad thing it's a journey like i said for every single person and maybe we come back and do this in five years I'd be like, man, you know, Bordeaux Blanc, fucking Monastrel Garnacha. And Gross, dude. Suck. What the fuck? <laughs> Nebbiolo. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. So uh, I don't think I'll ever say that. I'm pretty sure Nebbiolo and I will get along forever, but you never know, right? Um, and I just think, like, there's a rush to also, and it kind of goes along with that maybe a little bit younger crowd attempt to find um, people's own terrain, their own things, but there's a little bit of a, a rush to, to kind of find the most obscure... Um, out of the way corners varietals things and, and it just kind of ends up taking away from like you know what is really truly um amazing and i don't think we have to remain in um sort of odd reverence of the classic regions of the world forever speaking of which can i pour you some acertico oh i yes absolutely <laughs> another another favorite of mine i love acertico and actually santorini is very high on my list of places to visit so if you're listening uh producers in santorini please fly me out there i will be happy to say nice things about you. And I think, like, Estrita was this great example, right, of the wine where it's like, you know, you almost cannot, like, the fact that anyone makes wine in Santorini is insane to me. It's kind of a miracle. It is, it is, it is. From everything I understand, again, haven't been there, but from everything I've read and, and talked to people who've been there, like, it is, there's no, there's no water. I mean, there's an ocean, but there's no fresh water. There's um, a shit ton of wind. It's dry. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's what I mean. There's no groundwater. You have, so basically, the only moisture the grapes get is, like, condensation, is dew in the morning. And the There's no is, rain. Yeah. And the wind is so intense that they have to basically train the vines to, on like, the ground, essentially. In that basket shape. The Stefani, as it's called. Yes. Wow, you've been studying your theory. I do love... I just... As, as something. A Sirtico is a, is a thing that I... Um, yeah, I just found captivating. And it's just this incredible wine. We... Uh, I was uh, in um, New York uh, with my, well, I guess at the time, just my girlfriend, but <laughs> now my wife. And, um, uh, and we went to a, a Greek restaurant in uh, Tribeca, and we had some really amazing Greek-style uh, seafood in, in Isitiko, and it was just, it's just an incredible pairing. So tell me about this wine. I've been doing a ton of talking. I feel, I feel like I'm just dominating the conversation here. <laughs> You're a very dominant force. Uh, so this is a 2014 Ooh, vintage Santorini Asitico produced by Santo Wines, which is a union of Santorini cooperatives. And unlike someone perhaps um, like uh, Prudatori and Barbaresco, I can't imagine that there are that many wineries yeah. uh, on Santorini. So it's probably a cooperative of like three of them. Yeah. Um, you know, aside from this co-op, I've had Sigalis. Uh -huh. They're a favorite. And what was it? Atlantis, I think, is another one. There's another one that I've seen. I have a, a bottle of that's a Thera. 
THIRA, I think. But I don't know if they're okay. actually actively... I bought, like... Because I'm this kind of person. There was some... 2011 on closeout somewhere, and I bought, like... About a year, year and a half ago, I bought, like, six bottles. And I think I'm down to one. Um, but it's delicious and, and very age-worthy. I mean, that's a cool thing about um, a here to go I think, uh, really... Uh, whites that age I love I mean even, I also like whites that are not designed for aging true too but the the ones that are age-worthy are fascinating I mean like we just had this 99 um you know Riesling and that's yeah could probably come back to that in a decade and it would be just fine maybe even better it's really fresh but this Assyrtico it actually has tannin mm -hmm. they are doing six hours on the skins mm -hmm. during fermentation so I think, not that this belongs in every blind tasting, uh, but I definitely it could stand out based on that texture. Mm -hmm. Aromatically, uh, I think it mimics a few different things. Maybe Gruner could be a relative. Yeah. It's a neutral variety, though. It's not terpenic or... No. Um, have pyrazine no i think if anything like to me the 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 things that i tend to get off uh the aromatics i tend to get out of a uh, although i guess it depends on whether it's this sort of um like this is a you know limited skin contact and i think there's this whole like nicteri style which is like more even more skin contact that i've tried mm -hmm. that's almost like crazy ox it can be pretty crazy oxidation to the uh to the wine which i think is interesting i don't know that i would want that all the time but uh but it has its time and place for sure but i mean there's sort of a an unmistakable island quality to these kinds of wines like there's just a brininess a saltiness to them that i think is really um hard to hard to it's hard to kind of there, there's unless you're close to the ocean you just can't get that i feel like in any right. anywhere in the world um whether and, and with whites i think it's more evident you can get it in some reds but, but whites and i think like you know vermentino and sardinia or something is kind of more analogous to this mm. um just in terms of that um sort of salinity and the the sort of there's a little bit of I mean, it's the phenolic bitterness uh, slash the tannin on this. Um, and just the sort of, it's just, yeah, it's like, the, it's sea air. I mean, that's to me the quality here. And I mean, obviously, you know, maybe that's a little bit of a, of an overreach, or not a reach, but it's a little bit like tying it back into the place, but. We need some like mazithra cheese to go with this. Yeah. But it's like, it, you, you would have to think again, knowing Santorini, like if, if wines from Santorini didn't taste like they came from an island in the middle of the Mediterranean, you'd wonder what the hell they were doing wrong. Like, that's what they should taste like. For sure. So. And you get that with, you know, wines, uh, like Muscadet wines and Riespaches, Albarino. Yeah. But see, with Muscadet, I think the problem is like, or with Muscadet, you get, you get it, but it's much more to me, the wine is so, um, like the, the fruit is almost non-existent sometimes. Like it's so just like salt and like seashell which is great i think this is delicious but i think it's almost so like the fruit quality can be so hard to find in the wine mm -hmm. um and this has a little bit more of that sort of um fleshed out citrus quality to it because it's a little bit warm i mean it's quite a bit warmer you're not in the sort of cold northwestern part of france you're in the middle of the mediterranean so you do get some heat so you get a different kind of ripeness than i think you do with muscadet yeah it's almost like a lemon confit yeah type of deal i mean it kind of reminds me of like what you would sort of again maybe the thing that you would expect to 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 find there, yeah, that, that kind of like uh, Mediterranean citrus, like so. So even maybe there's a, I think a, even a little bit of like <sighs> tangerine or something, um, even a little more tropical, not tropical, but riper. 
Maybe it's like Meyer lemon. Sure. Or uh, Buddha's hand. Ah, see, I was yuzu. Yuzu, citron. <laughs> this is like a window into what blind tastings can be like sometimes. Where it's totally. like, oh, I didn't even know that was a thing. I'm actually going to, since I recorded our tasting uh-huh. on Wednesday, I'm going to add that on okay. to the end cool. of the interview so that people can hear us each go through a blind six. Oh, cool. And Spoiler warning, Nick did better than I did. Whatever, dude. You killed it. You did great. <laughs> I, I cheated. <laughs> I, I looked at the bottles before. Oh, there you go. That's, no, I, that's I, convenient. I didn't. But <laughs> I'm pretty sure that wasn't. That's not a thing that can be done very easily. I go to tasting groups six days a week. Really? Yeah. Damn, dude. That's I host impressive. I host three here at my house. Wow. On Thursday, Friday, and Sunday, and then I go Thursdays to Camlis. The one you guys did at Camlis this past week looked fucking insane. It dude. was whites. Yeah, yeah, that was super good. So we did aged white wines. So the Camlis prep group is for folks who are gonna take the the master exam. Yeah. Are you Are you sitting for that? I'm hoping to yeah we're we're waiting to hear back if okay. we got a spot i'm gotcha. anticipating that they got a lot of applicants this yeah. year i think that's the impression i have gotten so uh it'd be an honor to sit and i would love to be included but if uh they ask that i wait a year for some reason i'm okay with that too you know it's it's not a race by any means yeah i'm only 28 so oh there you go i shouldn't have even said 30s i'm sorry nick that's, a, oh, that's okay. my bad <laughs> just assume everyone's my age unless proven otherwise Totally. Um, so that's actually, that's a really interesting question. So like you, how did you get involved in wine? Like what was your, what was your, how did you get interested? You know, I was, I was in the industry and started working at Canlis and yeah, I guess just being around that list, man, it, that's, my history is a topic for uh, another day. Maybe you'll have me on Discord. I can probably know. reciprocate. Yeah. You can talk more and I'll listen. We can do uh, a little podcast trade. Crossover. Yeah. A crossover. Episode. So, um, do you have any events that you're going to be attending just as a participant coming uh, up? Um, I mean, we've got, you know, we're, we're right here at the end of February. So March is a busy month uh, with Taste Washington. So we have, uh, um, or with Washington Wine Month and Taste Washington. So that'll be going on at the end of the month. I will definitely be there for that. Um, we are going to be doing a wine dinner. So it's actually really uh, pretty cool. We're doing uh, through Tom Douglas. Um, this is... Um, kind of ser- uh, serendipitous timing this is also the 50th anniversary for Chateau Saint Michel so we're doing a dinner um, to celebrate that or to, to help kick off uh, Taste Washington that'll be March 24th uh, at the Palace Ballroom so uh, the tickets for that will be going on sale well it's the 24th today so theoretically today certainly nice. certainly soon uh, you can check Tom Douglas uh, the website for that TomDouglas.com and uh That'll be pretty cool. I'll be uh, bringing in some of the winemakers from the various San Michel properties, talking about their wines, pulling some cool older stuff because they have been around for, as I mentioned, 50 years and uh, not quite anything 50 years old, sadly. But uh, some cool older stuff. Some good and, stuff. Yeah, and it should be kind of fun. I think, you know, one of the things that's been interesting for me in, in my various uh, capacities in the wine industry is, uh, you know, it's one of the great things in this, in Washington in particular, is that the, the quality of winemaking. Um, is generally really high mm-hmm. and, and i think actually some of the great uh, the best wines and best values are being made by some of the largest producers i think it's easy for me and others to sort of forget about slash turn your nose up at a producer who makes a lot of wine um but san michelle in particular has some very very talented people working there some incredibly uh, high quality vineyard sites that they've uh, had planted for you know decades now 
and uh, and because to some extent of their size, they can make wine at a price point that not a lot of other people can match, and that's super cool. I think that's actually you know that's one of the values of for every sort of very small producer who makes you know these incredible wines that are you know tiny allotments or tiny uh, tiny production sizes. Mm -hmm. It's nice to have people making large amounts of wine that aren't just making you know two buck chuck or the equivalent thereof. Right. There's a, a, a nice flexibility that those larger houses have. They can, you know, yeah, whatever they want to do. And they can, and they can, yeah, they can price things to, you know, from less margin and have, you know, count on volume to make up the pricing and, and, you know, it also puts Washington wine out there, you know, nationally and globally to some extent. And yeah. I know there's a lot of winemakers here that owe some of their, uh, broader presence to being able to ride those coattails a little bit. That's kind of cool too, I think. Well, and chances yeah. are if you're overseas and you find a Washington wine, it might be Chateau Saint-Michel. Yeah, or something, or, or occasionally something very random. It's it's always interesting to me to hear where Washington wine turns up um, in, in not maybe overseas, less so, but, but I've seen some interesting random bottles in various parts of the U.S. that I wasn't expecting to see. And then you end up finding out that like, oh, well, the producer's like mom lives there or something. And so the local wine shop carries their wine or whatever. It's kind of these funny little stories. And you, you appreciate the sort of um, eccentricities of this industry. I can't wait to go to Europe and go into a tiny wine shop in some back alley and find just a crazy deal. You know? <clears throat> yeah, you never know that too. It's, it's, I, I feel like, you know, you hear all these stories. I have, uh, I have some some people in my life who are uh, quite a bit older and they tell these stories of finding these bottles of, you know, whatever it is, you know, first growth uh, Bordeaux for 20 bucks or something, mm -hmm. 25, 30 years ago <laughs> in stores and you just like, someone didn't, someone, you know, someone was getting an allocation forever and they didn't really know any better and it yeah. was, or it was whatever. I don't, I think those days are not 100% gone, but they're less, it's less the case than ever before just right. because there's so much more awareness and, and people are seeking those things out. But I, absolutely, I mean, you know, you go, one of the things that was cool about being in Europe is, you know, wine in, in general is just so much cheaper there. Oh, yeah. And so I was able to drink a lot of wine that would have been, you know, even in restaurants, that would have been really hard for me to fit into my budget um, that was much more, much more horrible. But, you know, to be, that said, you know, the Angelo Gaia wines and are still really fucking expensive in Alba. They're not that much cheaper than they are here. Uh, so I was hoping to, like, score some really cool stuff and... and Got to try some stuff, but wasn't able. Plus, you know, you got to bring the brand home, and yep. you know, you only fit so much wine in the suitcase. I well, fit, we take, fit about as much as we could. Take goodness for wholesale buying power. Yeah, you know, and closeouts and things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, there's definitely, uh, there's definitely still chances to do well, if, especially if you're, if you're willing to kind of uh, pick and choose your spots. So. Well, Mr. Jabal, thank you so much for the chat, Mr. Davis. My pleasure. Thank yeah. you for having me over. Thank you for pouring me some wine. Absolutely. Look forward to our. Uh, future adventures and would, yeah. would you say that people can find you most easily at uh, disgorgedwine.com yeah I would say disgorgedwine.com is a great place to look and uh, the various uh, social media is at zjabal just zm first initial last name and uh, you know I'm, I'm all over the place come see me at the Dahlia Lounge if you want sounds great man can pour you some Northwest wine or all kinds of stuff maybe no maybe no uh, skin contact is here to go but uh, one day can you do a, a blend of skin contact to Certico and Chateau Saint Michel Riesling? <laughs> <laughs> I'll see what I can put together. You never know. All right, I am ready. Whatever you want. Cool. Wine number one is a white wine, clean, star bright, with a low intensity of color, pale straw at the core. 
green highlights, no room variation, no sediment. There is bubbles in the wine. Viscosity and tearing appears to be moderate. On the nose, the wine is sound with a moderate aromatic intensity. The wine shows a youthful, fresh fruit character. Fruits on the nose. Pomaceous overall. Ripe yellow apple, ripe white pear. Lemon juice. White flowers, gardenia, apple blossom, lees contact. Stale beer, cheese rind. Parsley, tarragon. Uh, struck match, flint, high uh, uh, inorganic minerality, crushed stone, no oak on the nose, but uh, definitely a, a noble reduction here, uh, sulfur quality. On the palate, the wine is sound, dry, moderate body. Confirming the status of fruits on the palate. More to a tart expression. Tart green apple, tart yellow apple, uh, tart white pear, lemon peel, lemon juice. Parsley, tarragon. Baby's breath, apple blossom, stale beer, cheese rind, struck match, flint, smoke, high minerality, crushed rock, gravel, no oak. Acid is high. Alcohol moderate. No tannin. Uh, texture is really silky and, and lean. Not much in the way of bitterness. It's kind of creamy, actually. Well balanced. Uh, high complexity. I'd say moderate complexity, to be honest, uh, with a moderate finish. Tasty wine. We'll take this one to the old world from a cool climate due to its uh, non-fruit emphasis and, and tart character. Possible grapes, where the rubber hits the road. It's like Gruner Veltliner coming from Austria. Could also be uh, Pinot Grigio from Italy. Age range, one to three years, so 2014 to 2016. Final conclusion, this is a Pinot Grigio coming from the Old World, Italy, Trentino Alto Adige, 
Let's call this uh, Sutero Alto Adige DOC from 2015. Wine number two is a white wine, clear, day bright, with moderate intensity of color, yellow at the core, with bold highlights, no rim variation, no sediment, no gas, no standing of tears. Viscosity tears is moderate. On the nose, the wine is sound with a moderate plus aromatic intensity. The wine shows youth. Fruits, got a mixed fruit set here. Ripe tropical, ripe uh, stone fruit, ripe citrus. Ripe pineapple, ripe peach, ripe lemon juice, guava. Elevated florals, lily, gardenia. Red sage, bay leaf, eucalyptus. Mm. Hand soap. Moderate uh, minerality. Uh, this is like a turn soil. And a low impression of oak on the nose, cinnamon, vanilla. On the palate, one is sound, dry, moderate plus body. Let's bump that viscosity. Tears called to moderate plus. Fruits on the palate, riper than the nose. Getting ripe peach, ripe pineapple, ripe guava, ripe lemon, ripe lime, whole fruit basket, peach juice, maraschino cherry, eucalyptus, bay leaf, lily, gardenia, aromatic flowers, uh, moderate minerality, Let's uh, let's say that that's turned potting soil and uh, moderate oak on the palate. New oak impact from uh, cinnamon, vanilla, baking spice, toast. There's a, a creaminess on the palate, suggesting malolactic fermentation. Uh, low impression of diacetyl butter. Acid moderate alcohol, moderate. No tannin, but uh, confirming there's a moderate phenolic bitterness. Wine is well balanced, high complexity here, long finish, delicious wine. I think there's a lot of polish on, on this wine. It shows a lot of uh, care and you know, take this wine to the, the old world. Not that new world wines don't have care, but this uh, just seems very elegant. So old world uh, from a moderate climate. Possible grapes include Viognier, let's say France. Uh, leave it there, age range three to five years. So 2012 to 2014. Final conclusion, this is a Viognier from old world, from France, from Northern Rhone, from Condru, from 
2012. Wine number three is a white wine, clear, star bright, with a low intensity of color. It is uh, yellow at the core with pale straw and gold highlights. Uh, no sediment, there is gas, no rim variation, no staining of the tears. Tears viscosity is moderate. On the nose, the wine is sound with a moderate aromatic intensity. There is a reductive sulfur impact here, uh, kind of like a struck match, but not to a fault. Fruits here, or the wine is youthful overall. Fruits are tart, tart green apple, tart yellow apple, tart boss pear, lemon peel, peanut shell, stale beer. Cherry blossom, acacia blossom, birch bark, hay. Radish, wasabi, lentil, arugula, watercress, pinto bean, high minerality, crushed rock, no oak. On the palate, the wine is sound, dry, moderate body. Fruits, equally tart on the palate. Tart, yellow apple, uh, a lot of pear here, Bosque pear, cooked, Anjou pear, lemon juice, arugula, watercress, peanut shell, stale beer, cherry blossom, acacia blossom, birch bark, hay, wasabi, uh, red radish, lentil, pinto bean, high minerality, uh, crushed stone, no oak, sulfur, struck match, flint, uh, noble reduction. Medium plus acid, medium alcohol, no tannin, but confirming moderate phenolic bitterness. Wine is well balanced with a moderate plus complexity and a, a moderate finish. It's tasty. Uh, this is wine from the old world from a cool climate. Possible grapes, Gruner Veltliner from Austria. Age range, one to three years, 2014 to 2016. Final conclusion, this is a Gruner Veltliner from uh, Old World, Austria, Nieder Österreich from Comptal from 2014. Okay, one number four. It's a red wine. The wine is clear, 
uh, day bright with a high intensity of color, totally opaque uh, in its pigmentation. Ruby at the core with purple highlights. Uh, no rim variation to speak of, the color goes all the way to the rim. Uh, no gas, no sediment. Let's say no sailing of the tears, and tears viscosity appears to be high. Thank you. So on the nose, the wine is sound with a moderate aromatic intensity. The wine shows some development. Fruits starting to dry out. Fruit type, mix of red and black fruit, uh, baked quality, ripe. Strawberry, blackberry, black plum. Herbaceous, oregano, tarragon, dried. Tomato leaf, saddle leather, cut grass, wood smoke, pipe tobacco, high minerality, uh, mixed organic, inorganic, like a uh, soil with stones in it. And uh, no new oak impact here, but some dried fruit quality suggests oxidation coming from a neutral barrel source. On the palate, one is sound, dry. Full body. Fruits get more ripe on the palate. Red and black, strawberry, blackberry, black plum. Got some red licorice candy, dried flowers on the palate, uh, dried rose, oregano, thyme, saddle leather, pipe tobacco, tomato leaf. minerality, uh, no new oak, but possible neutral impact. Acid, moderate plus. Alcohol, moderate plus. Tannin, moderate. Wine is well balanced with a moderate complexity and Moderate finish, tasty. So this is a wine from the old world. It strikes me as having a lot of those non-fruit characteristics. From a warm climate due to its ripeness. Uh, but let's see here. I'm gonna say this could be a Tempranillo, coming from Spain. Could be Grenache-based blend coming from France. Age range, five to seven years. Uh, 
So five to seven years would be 2010 to 2012. And you know what? Come to think of it, on the palette, I'm getting quite a bit of oak character. I thought it was neutral before, but you know, in addition to some oxidation, there is uh, vanilla and dill and those good things. So final conclusion, this is a Tempranillo blend coming from Old World, Spain, La Rioja, Rio, Rioja DOCA from uh, Rioja Alta, Haro District, uh, Gran Reserva, let's just say Reserva from 2010. Okay, wine number five is a red wine, clear, day bright with a moderate intensity of color. Ruby at the core with uh, some garnet highlights. Uh, no rim variation, no sediment, no gas, no staining of the tears. Viscosity is moderate plus. On the nose, the wine is sound with a moderate aromatic intensity, showing a low amount of development. Fruits are red type on the nose. Uh, red, ripe, red raspberry, ripe strawberry, ripe cranberry. Uh, what we got here is rosemary, fennel seed, dried violets, uh, compost, organic, high impression of organic soil minerality. And let's say a moderate impression of oak on the nose, vanilla and toast. On the palate, the wine is sound, dry, full-bodied, uh, full ripeness of fruits here on the palate, strawberry, raspberry, red plum, cranberry, rhubarb, licorice. Rosemary, fennel seed, shoe polish, high minerality, organic compost turned leaves, soil, uh, moderate impression of oak, cinnamon, toast. Acid is moderate, alcohol moderate plus, tannin moderate plus. One is well balanced with a moderate plus complexity and a moderate plus finish. Tasty wine. Gonna take this wine to the old world from a warm climate. Fossil grapes could be a Grenache-based blend coming from France. Could be a Syrah coming from France. Age range, five to seven years. So 2010 to 2012. Final conclusion, this is a Grenache-based blend coming from the Old World, France, Rhone Valley, Southern Rhone, Chateauneuf du Pop from 2012. Thank you. Wine number six.
My number six is a red wine. It is clear, just bright, with a uh, moderate minus intensity of color. Ruby at the core. With some garnet highlights. This shows a low rim variation, a low garnet rim. No gas, no sediment, uh, no staining of the tears. Viscosity is moderate plus. On the nose, the wine is sound with a high aromatic intensity. The wine shows youthful character, fresh fruit overall. Uh, could be some development from an oak impact. Get there in a little bit. Fruit type this is ripe and candied red fruits, ripe candied strawberry, raspberry, cranberry, pomegranate. Lots of fruit here. Fresh, vibrant fruit. Fresh violets, fresh rose, cherry cola, Coca-Cola, lavender, rosemary, what do they call them, resinous herbs, lavender, that's totally there, honeysuckle, Cut stems, like cut flower stems, green element, cut ivy, pipe tobacco. Moderate minerality, uh, turned soil, like potting soil. And a uh, high oak impact here. This is definitely new oak, vanilla, cinnamon toast, allspice clove. On the palate, the wine is sound, dry, moderate body. Well, I'm going to call this full body. Viscosity is high. It's just got a lot going on. Fruits are ripe on the palate, candied, raspberry, cranberry, cherry, all the red fruits I can think of, pomegranate. Cherry Cola, uh, Twizzlers, Red Licorice Candy, Lavender, Fresh Violets, Fresh Rose. Pipe Tobacco, High Impression of Minerality, uh, Organic, Turn Soil, High Impression of Oak, Cinnamon, Toast, Clove, Baking Spice, Allspice. Acids, thank you. Acid moderate plus, alcohol moderate plus, tannin moderate minus, well balanced, high complexity, long finish, really silky texture, um, tasty wine. Some wine from the New World, high fruit impact from a moderate climate. Fossil grapes could be Pinot Noir from the United States, Pinot Noir from New Zealand, age, age range uh, three to five years, so 2012-2014. Final conclusion, this is a Pinot Noir from the New World, United States, Oregon, Willamette Valley. Let's take it to Amity Hills from the 2012 vintage. Cool, I got a
left, anything else you want to touch on? You're good. Leave it there, that's perfect. Nice work, man. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, let's see here. Do you like to go through these just one by one? And what's your, what's your preference for review? You know, how about we go through them one by one and first remind me what I call the end of vintage. Sure. So, uh, wine one you called the uh, Cambria show from LLJ from 2015. Uh, I mean, I liked a lot. I thought your notes were really good. I thought a lot of, um, you know, so you get sort of the salient points. These, you know, stale beer. Um, I think... What I would what I would say is if there's a thing that's going to be a giveaway for maybe about what this wine is, I think it's a little. I think you called a lot of aromatic elements, but I'm not sure that that Pinot Grigio is where I would go in a classic sort of grid sense with those with all those. You know, you sort of said a fair amount of. You know, you said gardenia. There was um, a lot of green herbs, um, all those things. Um, I had trouble with this one when we did it. Is a fair, is a fair, is a fair as well. Um, I also call it Pinot Grigio. It's actually Aberdeen. Inyo. Fourteen. Uh, Martin Codex. Yeah. Uh, you know, right. This is where it's kind of easy to get. Uh, right on. Um, but I mean, I think you know you were obviously in the right ballpark. I think Y2 you called Condrieu uh, um, and you were all over it, Condrieu. Um, I think maybe the only only little notes I would say on here, um, you called it, uh, I think maybe, I mean, I don't know, it, 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 it expressed itself, I would say, in the, in the range of white wine. I feel like this is a lot of phenolic bitterness. And you were kind of moderate, which is, I mean, whatever, you've got the right wine. But I, I feel like it's like pretty intense on this one. Like there's a lot of, for, there's also some oak on this wine, but I think there's just like that phenolic character, that like, yeah. thing going on. Um, but yeah, well, you nailed it. Uh, okay. You said 12, it's 14, but, or no, I'm sorry. Yeah, 14. Um, but again, uh, whatever. Um, wine. Again, wine free. I, you know, you got a lot of tasting notes that I really liked. A lot of, a lot of green notes. I thought you kind of hit all those, you know, sort of green herb notes, arugula, watercress, radish. Um, you know, the sulfurous note a little bit in there is good. I mean, it's, you're right on it. Green uh, Berliner. Um, 2011. Uh, but again, like, I feel like it's hard with some of those, like, especially if it's not like a really ripe. Style, it's hard to pick out vintage because yeah. no one made it. It was fresh, even five, six years What did I call for vintage? So you said 14. Yeah. It's 11, but I mean, I don't know how you would, I don't think you'd reasonably be expected to get that out of the wine. You wouldn't get, you know, I don't think in an exam setting you would get an older wine that didn't show some evidence of age. What region is that one? Uh, it was, you know what, I didn't actually write down. Uh, I think it was maybe Creme Stahl. Okay. Instead of Constantine. Legal? No, it's Forstreicher, uh, maybe is the name. Okay, we'll take a look. Yeah, you can show you the following. Okay, let's go through it. Yeah, I think I, I like 
it's a fewer all over 24. I really like if you went back and, and amended your oak call because there's definitely a bonus wine. Um, yeah, it's real hot. It's, uh, it is a Grand Reserva, it's over six. Um, we call it Reserva 2010. It's Baronia, so I think it's a little, it's a little, I, call, I think it's a little hard to sometimes make those distinctions. I, I think it's, it's not so incredibly complex and lengthy that I would necessarily immediately think Grand Reserva, and right, there's this huge controversy in, in Rio now about like people maybe not making a lot of Grand Reserva, having made a lot of Grand Reserva, not necessarily only reserving it for special vintages. Right. So, <laughs> you know, it meets the aging requirements, but does it deserve to be called Grand Reserva? Mm. You can decide that on your own. It's a debate. Uh, I think Wine 5 was maybe the toughest toughest wine in the flight. I brought it. <laughs> Group had trouble with it. Um, I thought a lot of your tasting notes were really great, and I think you, I really was. I felt like you were going to nail this wine, um, and then you sort of. So, so like a lot of what you said about this wine, I think, is right on. You know, um, ripe but very red fruited, um, high impression of organic soil. Um, you know, like you said compost leaves. Your fruit profile was all strawberry, cranberry, rhubarb, raspberry. Um, you know, there's definitely some oak on this. Um, Burgundy? Yeah. Um, so this is Volnay. Volnay, yeah. yeah. And I think, I think there's a way in which, like, the, the because of it's like, you know, this is actually technically just Bourgogne, but it's essentially declassified Volnay Cool. Because of the specific vintage, so let's see a decent amount. Of it. Although I think it's actually all used, but it's all like second use, so it still kind of has a lot of this new character. Mm -hmm. And um, I just I think like you know you weren't like it wasn't crazy where you went with it, but it's not. I don't really have a fruit profile as well, and, and like I think that really like, heavy impression of organic soil doesn't really sound like something where it's like, like it's all fucking rocks and shit down there. Yeah, it's got too much acid, not enough alcohol yeah. for Grenache. So. Um, and it's uh, you call it twelve, it's eleven. So okay, we're, we're in the. I think the other range is just yeah, that like yeah. What's the producer on that one? Uh, Bernard Moreau, eighteen. Cool. Yeah. Um, and then wine six, uh, you were really really great. Um, again, you got you know a lot of very similar tasting notes, unsurprisingly, because all the Pinot are um, and they were right on location, Oregon. Um, this is actually quite a bit older, so but again, I feel like it was hard to, I mean, other than sort of visually, there's that sort of, you're starting to get a little bit of that granite, and I think like maybe one thing I've noticed a little bit is like with newer wines in particular, when you start to see rib variation, the wine is invariably older than you think it is, because they're so attuned to color, intensity, and, and sort of preserving pigment, you know, whether it's cold soaps or things like that. That's totally. Like, if you see that pigment start to break down, it's probably a sign the wine is a lot older than we think it is, even if it doesn't really present that way on but again, I, I, I have is, is this Oregon? Yeah, yeah, King Estate. King. What's the appellation on this one? Just double blend. Blend it. Cool. Um, it's good. Yeah, right. It's and it's and it's. And you would not, except by looking at it, really be able to tell that it's 11 to 12 years old. Um, but yeah, you, know, you were, you know, you were definitely your notes were great on all the lines. I thought you had a lot of really key things, and you know where you went wrong, or where you didn't get it quite right, you were still right in. I blew it, man. <laughs> you have to edit that rap. Four for six. Four for six. I've never hit six or six. Oh really? I don't so, know. I someday. 
I mean, I guess it also depends on like what you define as hitting it, like how how precise to. I mean, I think getting six, getting even six varietal times for him, so if that's something that you can manage to do, put him in the right spot can be hard sometimes because right, like I, I would ideally in an ideal world we have we would have a we would have a library of stuff that's all super classic, but in yeah, it's like. I think a big part of the skill is being able to interpret any type of wine and I mean if we're dealing with a obscure native variety we have these points of comparison yeah. of like oh this is and I think so like this actually feeds in nicely to what I will say about my own tasting which is like I'm not particularly studying for anything else and so to me what's much more important to me than Definitely than filling out specific boxes, and even really to some extent, the conclusion is that the way I describe the wine sounds is correct. The notes that I'm getting are notes that are there. The structure of the wine is right, and that, and that you know, I want you. It's always nice to get the wine, the wine right. But what's most important to me is what I do. What I'm doing is that I the descriptions of the wine are, are correct. They're or at least that they, they are making sense. And so, yeah. You know, I've tasted sometimes in this group of people who are clearly very grid oriented, and I think that's totally fine. And like you have, you've been there, you've done that, you have the structure down. And I am, at this point, at least, less inclined to like make sure I hit every box because to me, that's that's awesome. I think that's super cool. And in some ways, if I if I decide to continue the court system, then getting that down will be a, a Goal and a challenge for me, but at this point, it's more about do I assess the wines and express them correctly? Yeah. Well, with that said, um, oh, you grab a sheet. Do you, do you want to use the I grid? Have notes. It's nice to have. Okay. Even if, even if it's not, I'm not sick to it. Sure. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. Give me a pen. So yeah, if you wouldn't mind just, uh, I'll, I'll keep my own time, but if you want to just let me know at half way in five minutes, well, yeah, one minute is good for me, I'm still scrambling. Um, I had this wonderful sensation when I was tasting this Gruner of like, Hell yeah, I know this is Gruner. Like, in the past, Gruner has thrown me for a loop many a time, and I've focused on getting it. So, like, to actually just have that point of recognition, yeah. it, it's cool. And I think it's also, like, it's one of those varietals where, for me, the sense of it comes and goes. Like, sometimes I feel like I have, I, I pick it up and I'm like, yeah, I know. Like, I get into it and I'm like, I know what this is. It's not just Gruner, almost anything, right? And then there's the stuff where sometimes you're just like, man, kind of, you get to the point where you're like trying to reach a conclusion and you're just like, oh, fuck, I don't know, like, one yeah. of these things maybe, and then you just kind of have to say like, whatever. So, yeah, that's, that's the way it goes. All right, you ready? Yeah, I think so. Okay. <laughs> Let's do it. Cool. Boom. Uh, wine one is a white wine. It is clear. It is... Uh, Right, it is uh, uh, moderate minus intensity of color, uh, sort of a pale yellow color with maybe hints of copper and green. Uh, 
Uh, there's uh, no gas, no sediment, uh, no standing of the tears, moderate viscosity. On the nose, the, the, the line is sound. Um, it is uh, a youthful. The new character, um, I'd say, is um, maybe fresh, not super ripe. The youth kind of fresh fruit. Fair amount of uh, citrus. There's sort of a pithy note to the wine in general. Um, also, maybe some uh, under, kind of just fresh, but not super ripe, tomatoes, uh, uh, green apple, uh, um, maybe a little uh, yellow apple, some moss uh, pear. There's a low impression of florality, maybe a hint of sort of generic white flowers, but nothing, nothing too expressive. There's a moderate minus impression of sort of these. There's a little bit of a kind of a yeasty quality to the wine, but not aggressively so. No impression of a little bit. The wine is sound, it's dry. Um, on the palate, there's definitely a uh, fruit profile. is again, that fresh, almost tart fruit quality, very fresh picked green apple, um, kind of juicy, but in that very tart way. Um, again, uh, lime, fresh um, squeezed lime juice. Grapefruit, definitely, um, almost grapefruit soda. Got a zesty quality to it. It's really kind of brightness. I'd also say there's an, an aromatic, a little bit of a note of uh, like a, a kind of savory green herbs, a sage, a little tarragon. Structure of the wine is uh, medium minus body, um, high level of acidity. Um, alcohol. Uh, there's a, um, a medium impression of sort of a stony, rocky, almost maybe maybe like a river stone soil. Uh, texture of the wine is really pretty angular. It's very lean. Uh, no evidence of oak, no evidence of malolactic fermentation. It's pretty um, so I think this is an uh, initial conclusion, or I should say, sorry, this wine is, um, no, this is kind of it. Uh, initial conclusion, this is an old world wine um, due to the really kind of Elevated level of acidity, the pronounced minerality, the fruit being just on the sort of tart, fresh side of things, not particularly ripe, and uh, no evidence of oak. Um, it's an older wine from a tropical climate. Uh, possible varieties could be uh, Sauvignon Blanc in France, could be Grunner Bernier from Austria, some of those vegetable notes. Um, age range is uh, fairly young, I would say, 2013 to 2015. Uh, final conclusion, Boy. Uh, I'm going to say this is, um, let's do this. 
Sauvignon Blanc from France, from the Loire Valley, from Sancerre. Uh, and this is from 2014. Wine number two is white wine. It is clear. It has a deeper intensity, moderate intensity of color. It is kind of a possible to see Sort of a pale straw color, the uh, secondary nuts of green in there. Um, no gas in the sediment. The standing of the tier is moderate uh, viscosity, moderate plus viscosity. Uh, on the nose, uh, the wine is of moderate plus aromatic intensity. Uh, sound is youthful, but there may be some low uh, notes of development. Uh, the wine has a sort of a so the, the pretty bright fruit quality, uh, there's definitely some snow fruit in here, uh, white peach, nectarine, apricot. Uh, so it's kind of a honey note to the wine a little bit. Maybe a little bit of ginger. Indications of, a, of some possible botrytis in the close to the wine. So, maybe, maybe a slight beam uh, note to the wine as well. Under the um, so, maybe there's a low to moderate impression of, of some oak, although we don't really get much in the way of new oak. It's just sort of a creamy quality to it. Sound. It is dry, but it's not bone dry. There's maybe a tiny bit of residual sugar to this wine. Um, uh, the fruit profile is maybe a touch riper as well than, than uh, on the nose, but still, it's still kind of in that ripe but not overly ripe way. Um, there's a there's definitely still some of that uh, ripe tree fruit note, white peach or stone bread, I'm sorry, uh, peach and um, apricot. Um, less into the really sweet stone fruit. Uh, there's definitely also like a golden apple and uh, more kind of um, almost like a roasted, or not sorry, um, uh, uh, poached pear. Um, there's also some notes of oxidation in this wine. Um, there's a little bit of a nutty almondy quality to it. That's sort of a, a slightly past uh, right, we're just starting to oxidize quality. The wine has sort of a, a broad texture, uh, the mid-palate. Uh, it's got, let's say, a medium plus acidity, medium plus alcohol as well. Um, it's a low impression of phenolic bitterness. There's um, Oxidative note and just a tiny bit of oak tannin. The um, wine is definitely of moderate um, plus complexity, uh, moderate plus finish. Uh, 
It's quite tasty. There is a uh, the fruit profile is pretty, um, pretty ripe, but again not not overly ripe, just kind of uh, fresh fruit. Uh, there's uh, some uh, riper tree fruit, um, maybe a really kind of ripe Bartlett pear, um, tangerine, mandarin orange. There's also a, a high impression of florality, a lot of uh, honeysuckle, jasmine, gardenia, um, uh, maybe even a little bit of rose petal, geranium. Uh, lime and grapefruit, uh, 
give you a little bit still of that uh, Mandarin note as well. There's definitely um, a, a butter plus impression of um, sort of rocky soil. Also more of an herbaceous note to this wine. Halfway. Um, that is that uh, more of a kind of a green herb, tarragonsate, mm -hmm. parsley note to it. Um, it's a little peppery, um, maybe like a radishy kind of note to it. Um, just a little bit of zest to it. Uh, the wine is uh, medium plus acidity, medium body, uh, medium plus complexity. There's kind of a red, red plum, red cherry, um, but also dancing plum. Um, a little bit of a little of a kind of uh, rambling black fruit, maybe a little bit of blackberry and uh, black raspberry. There's definitely uh, an impression of modern impression of sort of dusty soil. Um, there's also a modern impression. Some oat notes. There's kind of a clove, allspice, vanilla, cinnamon, mango. sort of um, a little bit of terracotta, like a, not overly baked, but just kind of more of um, modern impression of oak. Um, notes of uh, sort of oxidative winemaking, 
and exposure to oxygen, and then there's sort of a, just a hint of a sweet vanilla quality to the wine on the palate as well. Uh, structurally, the wine is, uh, has, I would say, high tannin. Moderate plus acidity. Um, moderate body, uh, long finish, and uh, have a great deal of complexity owing to the, owing to the tannin and the uh, acid. Like vegetable note as well. Um, not exactly pyrazinic, but more like um, sort of green herbs and a uh, lot of like oregano or not. Um, uh, this conclusion is an equivalent wine from a moderate climate. Uh, possible varietals include um, Tempranillo from Spain, Sangiovese from Italy. Say this is probably five to seven years old, so 2012, 2000, or sorry, 2010, 2012. Final conclusion this is um, San Giovese from Italy, Tuscany from the Brunello di Monticino, uh, of the uh, reserva level from 2010. Wine number five is a red wine. It is, um, it is a moderate uh, minus intensity of color. There's a brickish um, uh, center moving to some real garnet, quite a bit of rim variation. Definitely signs of, seems to be signs of aging or low pigment varietal. Uh, it is uh, no evidence of staining of the tears, no gas, no sediment, uh, moderate intensity. I'm uh, sorry, moderate uh, viscosity. On the nose, the wine is sound. Um, it is a moderate intensity, definitely signs of development on this wine. Uh, the fruit profile is. Um, Definitely red fruited, uh, red cherry, uh, red currant, red uh, plum. There's also a lot of uh, sort of uh, cherry cola, sassafras, um, sort of other bitter, just bitter root notes to it. Um, classic bitters. Mine um, is uh, modern impression of. Organic soil, potting soil, uh, forest floor, decaying leaves, mushrooms. Um, there's a little impression of oak. There could be a hint of sort of baking spice, but I could also be getting that confusion of those uh, sort of root notes. Um, uh, how the wine is sound, it is dry. Again, uh, the sort of tart red fruit you know, uh, kind of continues through red cherry, red currant, pomegranate, red uh, raspberry, cranberry, all those guys. Um, definitely some of those same sort of bitter root uh, notes, uh, very small herbs, cherry cola. Uh, high level of tannin, 
tricky flight today. Did you bring all the flights? Yeah. I saw you roll over the case and I was like, I was too big Who knows what you've got down at those uh, immediate bus sellers? <laughs> well, these are, these are fresh from uh, distribution. Oh. Current, current vintages. Oh, okay, cool. Thanks, guys. Yeah, yeah thanks. So I'll just kind of run through these, I guess. Um, first one, you called Sancerre 2014. It's actually Alparino. God, I fucking have so much trouble remembering it. I missed it too, man. Yeah. But it's too, you're right, there's, there, or not you're right, there's too much for now. It's always like, you know, you go back into it and you're like, oh yeah. But they're just kind of, uh, Juicy fruit, yeah, a bit more generous. And I said leaves on it, I should have. Yeah, I'm still circling at leaves as well. Uh, and then the second one, I think you'll be surprised by. It is, uh, so you said Shannon from Bouvray. It's actually cake bread Sauvignon Blanc. Oh, really? Yeah. So I think what you're picking up on, though. Yeah, now it's is, super. Now it's super. Is Napa. ripeness of Napa. You know, Vouvray has a lot to offer, oftentimes, and so. But it smells like onion skins now. Yeah. And if you put it on your palate and just kind of swish it around for a while, the pyrazines reveal themselves, but they're not super present. I think it's also just the texture is too big. I said that, and that was why I was like, I don't love any of my calls on this, but yeah, I didn't know what it was. I, 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 yeah, well, that's good. We're hitting all the ones. Yep, the tough ones today. So. Next here we've got, you went Schmerog Gruner 2012. This is Torrentez. So really floral, yeah. aromatic, dry, medium plus acid. So it's a similar structure to Gruner. Dude, it's too floral, no wait. Too floral. And I said that, I said like a million fucking flowers. And I think Schmerog's, yeah, yeah, they're probably similar alcohol, maybe 13, 13, 5. In that zone. Moving into the reds here. This one you went Brunello on. That's Mount Dieter Cabernet. Really? Yeah, so Napa. So high elevation Cabernet. 2013. A lot of oak impact there. Uh, next, you went Nebbiolo Barbaresco 07. It is Nebbiolo. This is from Gatinara. So Travellini uh, 2010. Blew it, dude. Yeah, it was Nebbiolo. <laughs> it's a very, it's a very pretty Nebbiolo. Yeah. Very delicate. Definitely doesn't have the, the power of a Barolo. So I think that feminine call of, of Barbaresco yeah. is a good move. And then this last one, you went King Estate. That's you had. No, that's what I went. Ha! You went um, Bone, Burgundy, Pinot Noir, 2011. This is Rioja. Uh, this is Faustino Grand Reserva 2001. Take a look at the fruit character and the ripeness. Cool. Yeah. Good job with the grid. You say, oh, I, I'm not that crazy about the grid, but you're like all over, all over the grid, so you're doing good with the grid. Is this for you? Your paperwork? Thank you. Mm -hmm. Good tasting of you. Mm -hmm. I think that's the first time we've done that. Certainly, yeah. 
you're like, I can't believe it's been never, but maybe it has been never. Well, well, good job.